names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Welcome to Escaping Society, where we hope to share tips. Hell, we'll give you the whole thing. Explore topics, (laughs) connect, though as a lifelong misanthrope, I already don't like you. Mm. Provoke, you lily testicles, into some kind of action, any kind of action. Offend, we may hurt your feelings, that's your ego talking, and question. Because if any of us had answers, would you really be listening to a podcast right now? Really? (laughs) I'm Gumby. I'm Teresa. And this is episode 64, Native Literacy Songs. Um, We are right now in the occupied lands of the Cherokee and the now extinct Carolina parakeet. Um, The leaf blower. And the leaf blower. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to have to talk, like, lean over into this uh, iPad extra far. We get a lot of sounds to compete with. Um, Hurricane Laura is currently hitting, what was it, Tennessee? Yeah. Which is right next to us. So it's really humid and unusually hot here, even in the mountains and, uh, cloudy so it's kind of got a weird tropical feel in the air right now and i just took a delicious dip in the swananoa river in Asheville, and it is what, what was it like 9 a.m or something so something. good yeah and if uh, you might be able to hear the song of the swananoa river in the background right now um if you're hearing it right now that's probably a leaf blower um We are in what the uh, slaves of the empire call Asheville, where uh, apparently the philosophy is, as long as you can confess your white privilege, it's okay to keep it. Um, I was thinking a little bit about that phrase, white privilege, and I realized the big part that I differ with liberals on is which word I take exception to. They take exception to the white end of that word. So in other words, if we just like open it up to everybody, it's fine. I take exception to the privilege part of that phrase, that if we all live in this, what we call privilege, the world's just going to die faster. None of us should be living this way. Um, but anyway, on with our topic. Um, we want to geek out on birds for this episode. Birds is something that they have a lot of information to share, and Teresa and I both have a great appreciation for birds for many reasons, so um, I'm going to start by sharing a story that I used to tell at camp, and I haven't told it in a long time, so I'm just going to do my best as usual. Um, I tried so hard to find where this story came from. I used to know which tribe it comes from, and with our limited access to Wi-Fi, I couldn't find it. So once again, I risked crossing that line of appropriation, which uh, I feel bad about because, you know, if I offend certain groups of people, fuck them. I don't really care. But I really hate risking offending uh, the indigenous people of this land after, you know, everything we've done and everything we're doing. Mm. So I will say that I, I got this story from a book written by Joseph Bruchak, who is a uh, indigenous elder, an indigenous storyteller. So look up Joseph Bruchak. He does stories called, like, Keepers of the Animals, Keepers of the Earth. And uh, in one of those books that I used to have is this story, and that has which tribe it came from. So, a long time ago, there was a boy who found an injured eagle, and he took the eagle, it was a young eagle, and he took it home to his village, and he made a little cage for it to keep it safe so it wouldn't wander in any trouble as people are working around the village, and he nursed it back to health. He loved this eagle with all of his heart. 
Um, he'd feed the eagle. He'd go out and he'd hunt uh, small rabbits and things for the eagle and feed the eagle strips of meat. And over time, people began to talk. They began to say, this boy, he's neglecting all of his chores. He won't help out around the village. Everybody's having to pick up his weight because he's so obsessed with this eagle. And so the people began to resent the eagle. They began to think, this eagle is a problem. It's distracting this boy. This boy, the older he gets, the more time passes, the less work he does, and the more work we have to do because he's not doing his share. Mm. So after many months... Um, his father and his brothers and some other people at the village decide that the only thing that must be done is they have to kill this eagle. They have to just be done with it. So the eagle, you know, the eagle with his heightened senses, his sharp eyes, his sharp ears, because as we're going to talk about later, um, birds, all birds are very invested in the senses of sight and hearing. He overhears this plot. And the eagle knows that if he doesn't leave tonight, that the people will kill him. Oh my so the eagle, for the first time, speaks to the boy. The boy didn't realize that the eagle could, could, could communicate with him so clearly. And the eagle says, I have to leave. You have to open the door of this cage. If I don't leave, they will kill me. The people of your village will kill me because you have not been doing your work. And the boy begins to cry and says, no, no, I can't, I, I can't just let you go. I love you. I don't, I don't want to live without you. Please take me with you. Wherever you go, I want to go. And the eagle says... There's a city that the eagles live in, and you can't go there. You wouldn't know how to live there. You couldn't even reach that city way up in the clouds. And the boy begs and begs, and finally the eagle, because the boy has taken such good care of him, and the eagle thinks of this boy as a member of his own family, agrees. And he tells the boy to pack up a little bit of meat in a small pouch, strap it to his body, and bring a strong, strong leather tether that he can attach to the eagle's leg. Well, that night... They open the, the, the boy opens the door, releases the eagle, attaches the tether to the eagle's leg, wraps it around his wrist really securely, takes that little pouch of food, and the eagle begins to flap his wings, his giant wings. He flaps and he flaps and the eagle lifts off the ground. He flaps and he flaps harder and before long the boy's feet raise off the ground and they're airborne. The people in the village hear this, the, the wind beneath the, the eagle's wings, and they come out, and they see the boy taking off into the sky with the eagle, and they point, and they say, look, look, it's the boy with the eagle. They're leaving. They're leaving. And the people can't believe their eyes as this boy is carried off by the eagle. Well, the boy holds onto that strap, and he's scared. He's getting way high up in the air. He looks down, and everything's shrinking, and he's so high up, and he knows if he slips, if he falls, that's his death. And so he doesn't look down anymore. He closes his eyes and trusts the eagle as it flaps and flaps and flaps. Well, the eagle flies to a place that the eagles instinctively know, even though this young eagle had never been there before. And the eagles call it Turquoise City. It's this place high up in the clouds, over the mountains. And the eagle flies there and reaches the gates of Turquoise City, these big, billowy, cloud-white gates eagles are along the wall of these gates looking down sternly at this eagle who has brought this interloper, this intruder, this human to the gates of Eagle City. They say, this boy cannot come in. This boy does not belong here. He can't eat the food we eat. He can't do what we do. And the, the eagle says, I will train him. I will train this boy to live like an eagle. Mm. And after some back and forth and some discussion, they agree, because the eagle talks about all the things this boy has done for him, all the things this boy has done for eagles. 
so they bring him a suit of feathers, and the boy puts on the suit of feathers, and now he looks like an eagle. He has the wings of an eagle. He has the beak of an eagle. The eagle begins to train the boy how to fly, and like with any lesson and a new skill, the boy tumbles, the boy falls, the boy stretches out his wings. He gets better and better, and but he dedicates everything he has. He wants to be an eagle. He learns how to fly. He learns how to hunt. He learns how to use these new eagle eyes he has to look way down and see the slightest little movement and be able to swoop down right out of the sky with those sharp talons and grab a snake, a rabbit, a rat, and eat this raw meat. And he learns how to appreciate the taste of raw meat, raw, uncooked meat. And so for all practical purposes, the boy becomes the eagle. Now, as they're teaching him the ways of Eagle City, they have one rule, one rule that is more important than any other rule, and that is never go to the south. You can fly as far as your wings will carry you to the west, to the north, to the east, but do not go south. That is off limits to the eagles. Well, one day, the eagle boy is out hunting. He's enjoying the wind beneath his wings. Imagine those big outstretched wings and the wind carrying you like a kite. He banks left, he banks right, he plays on the wind currents, he flies through clouds. And when he sees food, he dips down like a lightning bolt and snatches it up and eats it. Well, the sun's beginning to set, it's getting late, and the boy hasn't been paying attention, and he realizes that he has drifted to the south. It's getting dark, it's getting dark, and the boy has no, fa- no idea how far south he's gone. So... He decides it's time to turn around, but right when he's about to turn around, he sees something that catches his eye, that catches his eagle eye, his curiosity down below. It's a fire, a glowing fire. And as he looks, he sees more fires light up. Fires everywhere, little fires and and motion all around these fires. Quite a ways off, but he's got those sharp eagle eyes. He flies down closer, and he sees that there are people dancing around the fires. They're celebrating. They seem to have food and drink. It's such a celebration. They seem so happy. They're laughing and dancing. And somehow, even in the dark, the people know the eagle boy is there. And they begin to beckon to him. Come down. Come down. Please join us. Join our celebration. So the eagle boy comes down to their beckoning. He lands. He takes off his eagle feathers. And once again, he looks like a human boy. And he dances. And he drinks. And he eats, and he celebrates, and he parties so hard that he gets exhausted and falls asleep. Well, the next morning, the sun rises, and the boy wakes up, and he rubs his eyes, and he looks all around, and where what looked like a beautiful lush forest in the night now is ash. The only trees are stark, black, burnt-looking skeletons of trees. Ash, ash, ash. Nothing. As the boy rouses himself and gets up. He starts looking around for his eagle feathers, and he can't find them. They're gone. The boy is stuck as a human boy, and he sees motion in the ash. And rising up out of the ashes, to his horror, he sees their human corpses, the rotting flesh of dead people. They rise up. There's maggots in their flesh. Some of their faces are gone. Their noses are missing. They rise up. Some of them are just bones and skeletons. And as they rise up, They look at the boy, even when they have no eyes, just the eye sockets point at the boy. And then they begin to come for the boy. And the boy runs. He runs and runs as more corpses, more of the dead rise up. And he doesn't know where he is, but he runs and he runs. And eventually he hears a small voice, over here. (laughs) And the boy looks, and there's a woodchuck. 
Now, in many indigenous stories, the woodchuck is a helper. The woodchuck is someone who offers aid. And in this story, likewise, the woodchuck waves him over and says, hide, hide here in my burrow. And the boy dives down in the burrow. And he hears the corpses pass overhead. And the boy stays very quiet until he doesn't hear anything. And he asks the woodchuck in a whisper, where am I? Where is this? And the woodchuck says, you are in the land of the dead. What? Why did you come here? No living being comes here. Only I, the woodchuck, can burrow underneath and go where I please. You're not allowed here. And the voice begins to cry, and he says, I know, I got lost. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I want to go home. And the woodchuck says, well, I can get you started. Follow me. And the boy follows the woodchuck through a series of tunnels, endless tunnels, long, dark, confining, claustrophobic tunnels. He burrows and he burrows, following the woodchuck. And eventually they come out in the light, and it's the world he knows. Green trees, living things, growing things. And the woodchuck says, this is as far as I can take you. I smell the scent of eagle on you. I know that you can, your, your home is now the eagle city. It's that way. You have to climb the mountains. And so the boy begins a long journey. He travels and he travels days, weeks, months. He travels. Um, he builds a little bow. He makes little arrows. He uses different a hunting stick and eats food as he travels and goes. And he climbs those mountains and he comes as close to Turquoise City as he can. And he cries up to the Turquoise City, the Eagle City, please, someone hear me. I need help. I need help. And he stays there on the mountaintops as it rains, cold rain. As the sun comes out and burns him, he stays there day after day. Now the eagles, with their sharp senses, they hear him, but he's broken the taboo. He no longer belongs there. So they ignore him. He's no longer an eagle. He's not allowed in Eagle City anymore. Well, the eagle that the boy raised that he helped so long ago eventually takes pity on him and says, I can't just leave him there to die. He didn't leave me there to die. I must do something for the boy. So he flies down and he says, here. And he throws down some old, tattered, beaten up feathers. And he says, you can't come to Eagle City anymore. I can't do that for you. But here, go home. Go home to your people, your human people. So the boy, with no other choice, puts on those tattered eagle feathers, and once again he becomes an eagle, but now he's a very tattered, beaten eagle. And as he stretches those wings, he can barely fly. He pumps those wings hard against the air. They don't catch the current like his young, fresh wings did. And he flies and he flies until he sees his human village down below. And he comes down, and he lands, and the eagles come down behind him and snatch the feathers right off his back and carry them back up to Eagle City. They brought him home, and that's all they were willing to do. Mm. Well, the people welcome him back. He's returned. The boy is back. The eagle boy. And they welcome him back. And he tells his tale. And he shares it with the village. And they they can't believe their ears of this this tale of wonder and adventure that he shares with them. Um, And from that day forward, the boy is happy to be back among people again. People that accept him. His own people. And he never turns away from his chores. He does his part. So nobody else has to carry his weight anymore. He goes and he works in the fields. He helps out his family. He helps out his entire village. The boy's learned a powerful lesson. But it's said that for the rest of his life, anytime he sees an eagle soar overhead, the boy stops his work and pauses and watches the eagle until it soars out of sight and remembers what it was like to feel that wind beneath his wings, what it was like to be an eagle. Now, in the book, there was a little bit of an explanation about this story, and it's commonly thought to be a story about a a young man's vision quest that was uh, remembered in this tribe and shared um, about, you know, how we're we're all 
interpenetrate. Like you can be a bird, you can be the wind. The rocks are part of you. We're all we all become each other. All these these creatures, these life forms on this beautiful planet, and how we bring back le- back lessons to make our our village more powerful. Um, so yeah, that's my story of Eagle Boy. Hope you enjoyed it. My first thing I remember about uh, birds when I was a uh, a kid was uh, when I got a BB gun. And uh, I remember that to me at the time, birds were just colorful targets. They would fly around, and I would use my BB gun, and I would go hunting birds. And looking back, you know, it seems so cruel, and I often wonder about the cruelty of children. Um, Are we just cruel creatures? And I watch animals, and they seem to have that same instinct. I think it's just that we've... This healthy instinct that we have is is not allowed to be what it's supposed to be. So I think I had a hunting instinct. I think I wanted to shoot. I wanted to go out and 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 kill and test myself, my abilities. Um, but for me at the time, it was just target practice. And I also used that BB gun to uh, like shoot out my neighbor's windows sometimes. The cops would be <laughs> called. They never caught me enough to, to get me in serious trouble, although they suspected me. I got a few uh, talkings, too. Um, but I remember one day I shot a bird, and I went over to see it. And I didn't know species from birds. I didn't know one bird from another. And I hadn't killed it. And I picked it up, and I'll always remember looking down at that bird and seeing its eyes that I could see the pain. I could see the fear in its eyes. And I remember how powerful that was for me because until that moment, they were just targets. They were just moving targets. They weren't me. But at that moment, I saw myself in that bird. I knew what fear felt like. I knew what pain felt like. And that was the last bird I shot with a BB gun uh, just for sport, just for, for fun, without meaning. Um because I felt so bad as that bird died in my hands. I could feel its fast little heartbeat. I could feel the lightness mm-hmm. of its body, its hollow bones. And I could feel the life leave it. And my God, that was a powerful moment for me, a moment I'll never forget, um, where I, it really, the impact came home of what I was doing. So I think most of us, you know, in our culture, what birds are to us is like we set up our little feeders in the backyard and we put the bird seed out there. Uh, you know, I used to clean houses for a living for a while. And I'd see a lot of people that have this little station set up where they've got like maybe a little bird field guide and binoculars and they'd watch the, the birds at their feeder. And a lot of old people especially would have fun like identifying these birds. Um, and a couple of uh, field guides that are really good for that to, to begin you, uh, to help you start knowing what birds are what. My favorite is Peterson Field Guide to Birds, um, whatever your region is. Out here for us, it's the, the Eastern Peterson Field Guide to Birds. Um, Sibley's Guide to Birds is also a really popular one, although I don't like it as much. I just didn't find it the details to really add to it. And uh, another one that's kind of a, a further level along is Peterson Field Guide to Nests. I used to really love that one, too, because often I'd find a nest or, or find eggs or an eggshell. And uh, that was so good at just looking it up and be able to see what those eggs looked like, how many there were, what kind of nest, what kind of tree they built it in, how high up the tree, um, all those details that uh, I needed as I was finding these these clues of the birds' birds' lives. And, Teresa, I know I'm doing a lot of talking, so jump in there anytime you want about, like, any of your experiences with birds. Well, I'll, uh, can I talk about the tiny house? Yeah, please. So we had a tiny house when we were living in the trailer that um, Gumby basically 
turned an old chicken coop garden shed into a beautiful little abode for us. And it was complete with wraparound porches. And one of the porches, we hung a bird feeder, not really because we like went out and bought a bird feeder, but because we found a giant bag of bird seed. And I think your mom had given us a bird feeder or it, we had procured it somehow without paying for it. So we were like, oh, what the hell? And we would often sit in the bed um, in the morning, listening to the morning chorus or dawn chorus. And then we'd wait to see what birds first showed up at the feeder and we'd watch their behavior and just, I don't know, just looking out the window there. I think it was the north window. We would just enjoy watching the uh, the birds from our perch inside the tiny house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that tiny house had no electricity or anything, so I had this bed that was kind of elevated. It was like the top part of a bunk bed, and that's where we'd sleep. And the screen was right there by my head, and the bird feeder was right out there on that porch right in front of me. That was one of my favorite parts about our time in that tiny house. It's kind of like a bird blind, but just while you're in bed. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to go anywhere. And I've always liked the birder's proverb. Um, you know, I was talking about looking up birds and trying to identify them. When the bird and the book disagree, always believe the bird. Um, you'll encounter that as you start, like, trying to learn more about nature when you use field guides and things, is the animals haven't read these books. <laughs> now, the books are still useful. They describe generalities, things that are usually true. But um, sometimes the birds don't fit into these molds that we've assigned them. And uh, that's really interesting to just trust the bird, you know. And it's easy to get caught up in the book and like, well, no, no, this can't be that. They, they can't be doing that. That's not what this means. Um, but the bird has more to teach you about birds than the books. Keep in mind what a book represents. It's a human studying from the outside a bird. The bird is on the inside of being a bird. The bird <laughs> is the bird expert. True that. Now, bird seed, we were talking about that. There's a lot of problems with this way of uh, relating to the birds. The bird seed, um, like Teresa mentioned, the bird seed we got was dumpster dived or given to us, so I felt a little better about that. But um, birds are actually, and I learned this from uh, listening to Derek Jensen's podcast, Resistance Radio, birds are actually killed to produce this bird seed. What? The people that are selling us this bird seed, what that bird seed represents is money. And so they don't want other birds coming in and eating the seed before they can package it and sell it. So they kill birds. That is messed up. So already by buying bird seed, you think you're doing something good for the birds. You have actually contributed to a corporation that is killing birds so they can take your money so you mm. can supposedly take care of birds. Um, they use chemicals. A lot of them use chemicals um, to keep the insects off. And then who eats the insects? Birds. Hmm. This is another way the bird seed industry hurts the birds. Um, And the feeders, as we saw, you know, we had that bird feeder at the uh, tiny house. A squirrel would come. We just kind of, like, tried to chase off the squirrel, yell at it. But it attracts unwanted pests. It could be squirrels, it could be possums, it could be raccoons, but often these animals, because they are attracted to a food source, they're following their natural instinct, here's food, let's get it, Um, people will often start 
how would I say, resisting these pests, calling somebody to take the, the, the pest away, which can be a death sentence for an animal. You think like, oh, they just move it to another territory. It's like if you got like stripped, ripped out of your house and then just dropped off in some other city. Um, who knows? You don't know the bad neighborhood. You don't know who already lives there and is feeling territorial. So they either get removed or outright killed. Um, I, I know people, and I got a feeling this is what you're about to say, Teresa, that shoot squirrels. My brother's fiance's <laughs> mom literally sits inside her house and shoots the squirrels that eat the bird seed. And she feels justified in that because she bought that bird seed for the birds. How dare the squirrels steal it from her? Yeah. And again, you know, I've shot squirrels for, uh, for meat, for food. Um, it's not the hunting of squirrels that I'm against. And by the way, this what Teresa just uh, talked about, she's not hunting them. She's just killing them, yeah. right? She doesn't eat them. No. And these animals are attracted by the very thing we're putting out, supposedly that's supposed to be good for wildlife. Hmm. Now, you might think, oh, but it is good for the birds. Well, I already told you a couple reasons it's not. But I don't care about the squirrels. They're a nuisance. But everything is interconnected. As we keep learning, I feel like we should be learning. When you throw off the balance, there is an equilibrium out there. To hurt one thing is to hurt another. 75% of birds have gone into decline since 1966. 75%, three quarters of all the birds since 1966 are in decline. So if you're thinking like, you know, one of the big environmental warning, the first warnings that uh, our culture received was Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Well, it's happening. It is getting quieter out there. Um, if you're my age, 44, maybe you're even noticing it if you're younger. And if you're older, if you're going outside much, I would think you got to be noticing something. It's not your imagination. It is getting quieter out there. Um, there are now 29% fewer birds around. Over a quarter of the birds that used to be there in 1966 um, are gone. So there's a big decline happening, which I find just scary as hell. I can't imagine a time like 10, 20 years from now that like you don't hear bird song. That like you mention it to some kid and it's just like a mythical thing. Like what? There used to be these things that would sing to you. You know, it would sound like something out of Hunger Games, some mythical creature. Um, some of the causes of why these birds are going into decline. Again, the chemicals. There is one in particular called neonics. And it's a pesticide that is introduced at the seed stage of a lot of plants, including the bird seed themselves. And this acts as an appetite suppressant for birds. Now birds, with their high metabolism, their fast heartbeats, their light bodies, they live on a very lean, like a razor's edge of survival. They've got to eat a certain amount in a certain time. And if they have an appetite suppressant, if they don't feel that that urge, that hunger to eat, to meet that need, they die. So that's one of the big causes they've discovered that is uh, putting the birds into decline. And the other one... Science! Yeah, science. Making the world better. And the other, the big one, I bet anybody could guess this one. Anybody? Loss of habitat. (laughs) One thing that birds know that they teach us, and this is true for all of us, is it's all about the land. You are connected to your land. Our culture tries to act like you can just like pluck this thing up here, put it over there, no problem. Because this thing is not the land. The land is the land, this thing is the thing, and that's that. That's just not true. 
things need need to have places to live. And not only places, arbitrary places, but their places. You pluck up a people from where they belong, and when I say people, I mean human, bird, any kind of people, and then put them somewhere else, there's going to be problems. Even if they survive there, there's going to be problems, because there is an equilibrium there. And when things, you know, you might argue that in nature there are ebbs and flows, new things come, uh, things that were there go away. Well, usually that's fairly slow. There's an ebb and flow. Things have a chance to readapt. This culture, this worldwide culture where we're just like <clears throat> eating up land. And even when we're trying to be good stewards of the land, don't you just love that uh, human-centric phrase? Like, it's ours. We won't acknowledge ever that it's not ours, that it's not our job to either be good or bad caretakers of it. Um, we just pluck things up and move them someplace. So the birds are in decline because of their loss of habitat. And to a bird, especially a bird... Land is everything, which we'll talk about in more detail as we go on. Um, I was thinking about, I was trying to remember getting ready for this podcast of what birds represented to me before I started really geeking out on birds, learning about bird language and uh, identifying birds and everything. And one story came back to me of a time when I was younger, and I would take these night walks with my dogs. And we'd go down this old country road, and uh, I'd go to the end of it. And when i go to the end of it, one night I heard this scream, this blood-curdling scream. I'm all by myself, and this sounded like a woman was being murdered out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And holy shit, it scared the hell out of me. My blood turned into into ice water. Like all all the hair, I used to have hair, stood straight up. (laughs) It scared the shit out of me. Well, I got out of there pretty quick. Next night, I walked down there. You know, and I'm kind of like, I don't know what the hell that was. I don't think it was a woman being murdered. Um, But I guess if I don't hear anything on the news, it probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Next night, I hear it again. And at that point, I'm figuring out this is a nature sound. I'm not sure what kind of nature sound, but it's not a threat. It's just like a terrifying alarm that's going off that just scares the unsuspecting pedestrian. Hmm. So I decide, oh, man, I'm going to have some fun with this. So I invite my mom to walk with me the next oh, night. No. <laughs> I say, oh, it is so cool to take these night walks. Like, you know, I'm learning about stars and everything, and I get her to come with me. We walk down the road, down this long dirt road, right to the end where you're all by yourself. And uh, then that blood-curdling scream rips out of the tree, and I say, oh, shit, what is that? And I take off running as fast as I can <laughs> and leave her all by herself. <laughs> and... uh I wait like about halfway. Oh man, that was so much fun. (laughs) I wait about halfway back down the road for her to catch up because, of course, I'm much faster than my poor old mother. And uh, I can hear her huffing and puffing like in the darkness, like, God damn it, son of a bitch! I mean, just a string of profanities. Um, She laughs about it now, but at the time, like, I thought that was pretty damn funny. (laughs) I've always been a really nice person. So, and I remember uh, when I had my journal, there's that lessons learned from geese. You ever encounter that, Teresa? Like, there are different ones where people say, these are lessons learned from geese. Sometimes that's used as, like, in a corporation. Oh, I've seen, yeah, like, we went to um, a cookout one time. I forget where it was. And in the restaurant, uh, it had, like, these cutesy little paintings of, like, lessons learned from the deer, lessons learned from the bear. 
what are some lessons you've learned from geese, Teresa? Uh, <clears throat> well, I had this encounter with a, a couple of geese, a geese, a goose couple, and a mated pair, and uh, I guess they decided that their nest was okay right next to the sidewalk that led to the parking lot where I worked, and. Um, yeah, so I was coming out of, of work, walking, and I was just, I guess, I used to leave work early or, or really late, so I was by myself, and they decided to um, defend their territory from me, and they were hissing and just really um, protecting their territory and their nest, and I just felt like I would never think of geese as being so... Um, strong and kind of scary and territorial they were hissing at me and all I had was my umbrella so I kind of opened my umbrella and (laughs) and like just kept opening and closing the umbrella to keep them away from me and I wish I knew more about how to communicate with birds at that point but I didn't so I was just really trying to defend myself but I guess I learned from geese that man they're tough Mm -hmm. tough as nails yeah I could probably go on like think of a whole bunch of of different lessons, but the one that's just occurring to me right now is community. Um, how much they look out for each other, how much they organize, you know, how much there's a sentinel, you know, there's always that one goose that when you get too close, that one head perks up like it's that goose's job to to watch you. Um, and how they work as a group, you know, you think about what it represents for this group of geese with no technology, no outside help, just what they have, what they are, to make these big trips. Um, where they travel looking out for each other. And I've heard they take turns in the V formation, you know, who's up front, because whoever's up front has the most wind resistance. That's the hardest job. And so that that goose, goose will fall back and another goose will take that job. And each of the geese behind them, one of the reasons they have that V formation is because when you get behind the other goose's wings, they're cutting down on your wind. It's a little easier for you to fly. So it's like one goose takes the hard job and they switch around. I mean, there's just so much goose have to teach us about about tribes and, and community. And to me, that's such a poignant lesson for us right now because we are so bad at it and getting worse. We're getting more and more alienated from each other as we put all of our faith and trust in governments and technology to do this for us mm. instead of us coming together with what we are and using that as our strength. It's a really good point. One of the first birds that I learned about, and, uh, you know, I think this is a lot of people's first bird, is the American robin, who was given the unfortunate name Turdus migratorius. The moving turd. Yeah, I've got to assume they were named by someone who did not like robins. Um, But, yeah, one of the cool things I learned about robins, and they, they make these mud nests. So if you ever are looking at nests and you see one that's like the inside looks like um, sculpted mud, pretty good chance that that's a robin um and especially if there are powder blue eggs inside um those are often robin eggs i don't know if they're the only ones that have that color but that's a typical robin egg and i often find that when i'm taking walks you know like a little powder blue egg and the reason why by the way you find those little uh, pieces of egg sometimes nowhere near a nest is because when the chicks hatch out the parents will often take the egg parts so there's not an added attraction for the predators to kind of reduce the smell and just fly off with it and drop it someplace else. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. 
And you can even tell when a uh, robin is on the nest, is building the nest and about to uh, prepare to have a clutch, a uh, you know group of chicks. Because if you see a robin with not just the robin red breast, but actually mud on their belly, and I say there because I can't, I don't know for sure whether it's the female or both that build the nest. Um, that's a robin who's out preparing to have chicks. Um, and turkey vultures. Turkey vultures are a bird that uh, I've always been fascinated with. They're just so freaking gross and so big and so scary when you like you're not expecting to come upon them, and then there's this whole group of big ass vultures. Especially when you're dumpster diving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've run into that. Um, they puke defensively, so if a predator comes up, they just <laughs> they drop all their cookies. When you think about what they eat, oh god, you know that is a deterrent. So a predator might, oh, there's a food source, and then <laughs> like, whoa, I can do better. <laughs> they shit on their legs for heat. Who so doesn't? They, well, yeah. <laughs> So they have these exposed legs, you know, that don't have feathers on them. And when it's really cold, they shit on their own legs. And that helps conserve heat, keeps them warm. Um, and I love the way, like, watching a turkey vulture ride the thermals, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why they're circling over the fields. I used to think that meant they had found something, but not necessarily. When they start all grouping down and focusing on one thing, they found something. But often the reason why they're flying over a field is because from up above, forests are dark. The top of trees and leaves is dark. And so, what is it? Dark colors absorb heat. Mm. And so there's not as much reflection of heat. A field is a lighter color. A parking lot is a lighter color. It's reflecting more heat back up into the air. And so it's easier for the birds, not just turkey vultures, hawks as well, to ride these thermals until they have a reason to spend the extra energy to go wherever it is the food is. So for them, it's just kind of like flying around in these big graceful circles waiting for something for a turkey vulture they have the best sense of smell of any bird it might be a scent they pick up and now they go wherever they need to to get the food they use their energy to get that food they flap back up in the sky and find another thermal to ride which is generally over a field or parking lot i thought that was pretty cool that there's this uh bird that's telling me something about what's happening in the air that i can't see that's invisible to me but i can see it through the bird um, if you go uh, parasailing, I think it's called, the one where you use a parachute and you just kind of basically jump off a cliff, the way that the, the guides, the companies kind of know that this is a good place is they look for the birds riding the thermals. Hmm. That's cool. I didn't know that. And you hope that they are right <laughs> <laughs> as you jump off the cliff. And these turkey vultures, uh, according to scientists, one of the reasons that they have these bald heads is because they stick their heads in carrion, in in dead, rotten stuff that's full of bacteria. And so one of the ways they keep from getting sick themselves is this bald head is in the sun and it kills the bacteria, whereas feathers would give it a place to hide, to propagate, to Mm. uh, increase, and could make the bird itself sick. I've always liked this native story I heard about uh, how, how... the people needed fire and at one time vulture had a beautiful head of feathers and and vulture volunteered to go get the fire from the sun and held the little ember in his head in his head feathers this these real thick feathers he had on top of his head and of course it burned all the feathers off and left vulture looking the way we uh, know him now but it said that vulture still remembers that relationship with the sun so when you look up you'll often see vulture circling the sun um 
to remind us of what he did for us. And I also think about Tom Brown Jr. When I took uh, started taking classes with Tom Brown's Tracking Nature and Wilderness Survival School, oh he shares uh, this concept he calls the same old trap. And he starts off talking about a robin. And he uh, says at one time when he was a boy, he heard a bird moving in the bushes. And he goes over there, and he stalks up really quietly, takes his time, and then he sees that it's a robin. And he turns away, and Grandfather says, what was it? Grandfather's stalking Wolf, the Apache elder who uh, taught him. He says, oh, it's just a common robin. And stalking Wolf gets really angry, and he draws a little outline of a bird on the ground. And he says, you think you know everything you need to know from the robin? Draw me every single color. What wings are longer? The primary wings or the secondary wings? Where are all the markings? Where are the dark places? Where are the light places? Draw a robin to perfection, you know? And he's pointing out to Tom, like, by getting in the same old trap, this, oh, it's the same old thing, he hasn't learned anything. He's just on a superficial level that there's always more to teach. Hmm. So Tom says when he gets older, he's on a train at some point with these bird watchers, and, uh, Tom's looking out at the train window, and he sees a turkey vulture, and it's in the morning, and the turkey vulture is spreading his wings towards the sun. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we've seen, like, herons do it. We've seen other birds, and that posture is just one of the most beautiful postures. Uh, I can't think of a, a more appreciative posture for sunshine, for a new day. But this turkey vulture's wings are just outstretched, cupping the sunlight. The dew is shining off its feathers. You know, it's just a vision, a graceful, beautiful sight. And there's these two bird watchers in front of him. And uh, one of them says, what, what's that bird? And the other, you know, the professional bird watcher says, oh, that's just a turkey vulture. And Tom said he grabbed the guy from the back of the neck. And Tom was kind of this kind of roughneck, redneck uh, guy that lived in the woods and knew a lot about the woods at that time. Um, and he, he describes this guy as having like a geeky little pencil neck. And he jer- jerks the guy up and says, just a turkey vulture mm-hmm. and just like gives the guy hell about like look for god's sakes look are you even seeing this and the guy's like petrified but anyway i like that lesson makes me think of that um and as i got to know more about birds when people talk about birds that nest near them this is kind of interesting in our area you know somebody will say like oh yeah i got this bird near my house and i right away know it's probably one of two birds my next question will be uh, is the nest in the rafters, or is it in some kind of weird other place, like not high up? If it's in the rafters, I'm going to guess, and again, like there's no certainties. It's just generally true. It's an eastern Phoebe. If it's in someplace else, man, there's a bird who loves to nest near people, Carolina Wren. I have seen it nest in all kinds of crap. Like It'll get inside your house if there's like a little hole in the screen and build a nest on top of your refrigerator. I mean, they just they love being around people. Why is that? Um, that we think, anyway. Well, I'm going to make a guess. And I'm going to guess that maybe they build their nests around people because some of the things that are worse threats for them, things that would eat their young and eat their eggs, probably don't like us. Hmm. So this is something that uh, I learned a little bit more from John Young birding. He calls it a... Uh, shoot, I can't remember at the moment. But... It's a way that they use to guard. Um, they use us to guard from things that are threats. And, Teresa, you want to talk about that time you saw the heron? Okay. One time, 
we were walking on that same road that Gumby was mentioning earlier when uh, he took his mom to get her the shit scared out of her by that owl <laughs> in the night. Um, yeah, we were actually uh, living in our van at that time, so we would sometimes park the van and had a fire pit and everything in this field beside my mom's house, and it's just beautiful field that, for the most part, pretty out in the country and quiet, except for this one asshole that moved into the neighborhood and built a, a big McMansion across the street. So yeah, we were taking a walk in the morning, and there's a beautiful lake towards the end of this road that's now just been neglected. They've, like, torn up all the pavement and everything. And as we're starting to turn around, I see, we probably both see, this great blue heron, and above it, a bald eagle. And to me, it looked like they were racing, and I was like, wow, this is so amazing. Like, this is how you know that, you know, it's not just humans that are, you know, having fun. Look at these two birds. They're, like, obviously trying to see who's faster across the surface of the lake. And uh, I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) Maybe they were just having fun. But then uh, we were reading this book by John Young, Uh, what the robin knows and he was talking about how eagles sometimes eat great blue herons so maybe it wasn't exactly (laughs) a race or it might have been a race of a different kind a race for the great blue heron's life but (laughs) i am happy to at least from the perspective of the great blue heron the great blue heron uh continued to fly in the direction it was flying and the bald eagle decided to perch up in a tree so i guess it gave up Mm mm-hmm and uh, another book I want to throw out there that's, uh, if you're a bird geek, um, that's a really unique book. <laughs> I just did a turkey vulture. You're disgusting. So eating while leaning and talking into an iPad has its hazards. Let's move along. Oh. Um, so Pigeons and Doves, you know, this this book, The Birder's Handbook. I can't remember who wrote it, but it's the only book I know of that by that title. It's a big, thick, yellow book. And it's got all this, like, really geeked-out information on birds you don't find in other field guides. And interspersed with it is articles on uh, stuff you didn't know about birds. But one of the things I learned from, from that book that I really enjoyed is when you think about a chicken or a dove or a pigeon... You know, think about the way they walk, how they bob their head, you know, like they're strutting their stuff, like, yeah, yeah, boom, 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 bobbing that head. Well, they've got monocular vision. That means they've got eyes on two sides of their heads. So often prey animals have eyes that are more on the sides of their heads, and that allows them to see more around them. But they've sacrificed depth perception. So they can see more of an area than we can, and they can notice motion. And they can decide it's a threat and get the hell out of there. But they're not as clear as we are on how far away the danger is. So best just to get the hell out of there. Is that kind of like wide-angle vision? Yeah, wide-angle vision is sort of us coming closer to that. But we can't mimic, uh, you know, we can't put our eyes actually on the sides of our heads. So wide-angle vision isn't as good as that. Um, And carnivores tend to have, like we do, binocular vision, eyes that are facing forward. We've got better depth perception. So we've sacrificed a wider range of vision for better depth perception. And if you're stocking up on an animal to eat it, this is very helpful to have a better sense of how far it is. Is it so far away that it's not worth the chase? Do you need to stock up closer before you give it that last burst of speed? Um, More important information for the predator. But anyway, these birds that have the monocular vision one of the ways they compensate for depth perception is they bob their head. Forward and so and back. 
forward and back or up and down. Just picture a chicken walking along. And that allows them, like, try it. Close one eye. And you might notice if you have one eye that you're not seeing as much depth perception. Things look more two-dimensional. And then bob your head. And it's really fun for the people hanging out with you, too, because it makes you look super cool. I used to love showing this to the kids. Like, they forgot what I was trying to teach them because they were like, what the hell is this guy doing? But it allows you to kind of mimic depth perception because the things that are closer to you move more. The things that are further away move less. And so it's kind of a way of cheating. It also reminds me of people that generally listen to country music. They, like, do that bobbin head thing. So maybe they're just oh, trying... Oh, any guy at the nightclub that's not like John Travolta, that's, that's called white guy dancing. Is that to help with their depth perception then, I think? Yeah, because they're trying to use, like, the wider field of vision to see where all the, the chicks are. <laughs> and then the depth perception, like, hey, can I get there first? Oh, my Ooh, God. giggity, giggity. Oh, my God. All right. And then I started, like, uh, getting into survival, you know, wilderness survival. And, man, all the things that birds do for us. Meat. Um, I remember one time I was on one of my survival overnights, and uh, this at this level you could bring in hunting weapons. And I had a pellet gun. And uh, I got a really good shot at a morning dove. Killed it. We uh, took the feathers out. We ate it. And it was delicious. It was just like a tiny little chicken. I don't know what I expected. I expected it to be gamey or something. But no, it was delicious. It was totally good to eat. Um, And apparently this is a bird that, like, they have a hunting season for, I believe. Like, you could go hunting morning doves. Which I feel like I'm seeing less morning doves. So I don't know if that's getting overdone or I don't know what's going on. It's hard to tell what's going on. There's so much crap going on in the world right now. It's hard to trace the causes. But it's most of the causes are us one way or the other. I wonder how those genetically modified mosquitoes that they are releasing in Florida are going to affect the birds that potentially or other beings that potentially eat the mosquitoes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to affect things, but I will bet anything that I can bet, which isn't much being a hobo, but bad things will happen. Anytime we try to improve the world instead of meet it on its own terms, bad things happen. Zombie apocalypse. Um, Another bird that I ate in a survival situation was making a little Paiute deadfall, and uh, a bird actually came and uh, was attracted to, I was probably using peanut butter. So got curious about the peanut butter, came, set off the trap, bam, landed on it. I think it was some kind of sparrow. So, of course, because I I killed a bird in a hunting situation, I ate it. Like I said, that that bird that I watched die in my hands, that was the last bird I just killed for no reason. It wasn't the last bird I killed. Um, And and let's not forget that when we go to Chick-fil-A or wherever you go um, to get your meat fix, somebody had to kill that bird, so don't judge. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, God, arrow fletching, you know, particularly wild turkey feathers, they're great for that. They, uh, fish lures, you can make all kinds of really good fish lures. And this is something I want to learn more about because anytime I go fishing, I feel so bad about like killing the worm or whatever I'm using as bait. Because then if I don't catch the fish, I just killed it for nothing. And I really feel bad about that. So if I can start getting better at things, ways to lure the fish, you know, that at least when I kill the fish, I eat it. Um, Feathers are apparently a really good thing. Quill pens. Let's not forget about those quill pens. I would imagine a lot of those were turkey feathers. Smudge fans, whether it's the whole wing of a bird or whether it's a big feather. Again, like a turkey feather. A turkey feather is a hugely useful thing. Um, when you're doing a smudge, sometimes somebody will have like a, a seashell. 
and put the smudge, like a coal in it, and then whatever plant, whether it's sage, red cedar, motherwort, and use the, the feather to kind of push it, push the smoke on whoever they're smudging. And uh, yeah, I've just always thought that added a, a, another level of depth of meaning, of power to that. And of course, let's not forget Dumbo. Um, you know, <laughs> he didn't know how to fly until those politically incorrect crows, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, here you go, Dumbo. Here's a feather. That'll see, I, I have seen most everything, but I ain't never seen an elephant fly. They always crack me up. I think they probably pulled Dumbo, so most younger listeners probably won't even know what that is. Yeah, I'm sure it doesn't look the same way anymore. <laughs> but I'm not so convinced whether that, that feather was a placebo or not. That feather helped that elephant fly. So that's something else the birds have given us and Dumbo. Um, another bird that stands out to me is the killdeer. And that was a bird that, like, I love how it does that broken wing dance. Um, when I was a grave digger, I would have to mow the grass. And I remember one killdeer in particular. Well, we'd find killdeer all over the place. They loved the cemetery. And when they were little chicks, you could catch them. So at the time, I just was so fascinated with the fact that I could, like, run down a little killdeer and hold it in my hand. And hopefully I didn't do it any harm. I always released it. Um, but, God, who knows how much you've stressed the bird. But it was fascinating to be able to look that closely at a bird to hold it. Um, and if you got too close, they'd, they'd feign having a broken wing. They'd put out a wing and start going in a circle. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, oh, I'm hurt. And they'd lead you away from the nest like, oh, I'm easy prey. And, you know, if you get a little too close, they fly a little bit. And then, oh, oh, my wing. Oh, God, I, I wish I could fly away. And I'm amazing. I not, remember not your rendition, but just the way that it does that. Well, let's hear yours. Well, I was just going to do my impression. It's easy to hate. It's hard to create. Of what the, uh, in case our listeners aren't sure of what a killdeer or how they sound or anything, they actually sound like, killdeer, 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 killdeer. Well, they don't do that when they're doing the wing thing. Well, no, but if you've ever been, I would say like Eastern United States, especially around like an open field area. And I think, do they tend to be near to the coast or like just toward an open area? I don't think they're really coastal birds. I mean, they might be at the coast as well, but I don't think they favor it. But you'll hear, like, kill deer, kill deer, or deer, 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 as they fly away. Yeah, they're in a group of birds that is known as namesayers, um, that their their call sounds like they're what they're named after. So, kill deer, kill deer, kill deer. And uh, I remember one time finding their nest, and uh, I found the eggs, and I felt like... You know, I want to get experience with all the survival things I can. So I took one of their eggs and I felt like I need to try eating a songbird egg, you know, to just see what it's like, because I don't want to wait. I'm planning on putting myself in a survival situation, not needing society. And the more practice I get with all the things that will help me do that um, is a good thing. So I got that egg and I took it back to the house and I fried it in a pan and I can't say it was good. It was edible. But, yeah, it was not a chicken egg. Um and, and you're allergic to duck eggs. Yeah, now after I've had my gallbladder out, like I used to love duck eggs. It was my favorite egg. And now if I eat anything with duck eggs in it, I am puking and in hell for hours, just dry heaving and puking and like, oh. So it's it's like my worst allergy now, duck eggs. Now I've told everybody how to kill me. That's true. <clears throat> anyway, 
I remember when I was a grave digger and I was mowing the grass, and uh, there was one kill deer in particular that faced down my mower. Like her, she was doing the broken wing thing, but she wouldn't get out of the way of the mower. She wouldn't fly off. Like I just expected her to fly off. I almost ran her down because I was so sure she'd fly off, and like she didn't. So I stopped my mower, got out, and realized her nest was right behind her. Wow. And I was just so impressed with this bird's courage, you know, like. You hear about birds raising clutch after clutch, you know, they just kind of accept death. But for whatever reason, this bird in particular was about ready to face down and possibly die to my mower before sacrificing her eggs. And that just really, like, blew me away. Like, I I told the other guy I was working with, and we started putting little flags on the killdeer nest, you know. We really uh, tried hard not to hurt uh, hurt these killdeers, the eggs or the, the adults. But my God, there's so much more to say about birds, uh, and we're getting to the end of our episode. So I want to share a couple things that I got from John Young's book, What the Robin Knows. And we hope to do another episode and get a lot more into bird language. Right now, we're just kind of geeking out on it. But in his introduction, um, he's got this quote from a San Bushman. And the San Bushman says, If one day I see a small bird and recognize it, a thin thread will form between me and that bird. If I just see it but don't really recognize it, there is no thin thread. If I go out tomorrow and see and really recognize that same individual small bird again, the thread will, will thicken and strengthen just a little. Every time I see and recognize that bird, the thread strengthens. Eventually, it will grow into a string, then a cord, and finally a rope. This is what it means to be a bushman. We make ropes with all aspects of the creation in this way. I love that. Beautiful. I mean, he's applying it to bird language, and I think birds really lend themselves to this idea, but of course it applies to everything, um, building these ropes. And another thing I want to share from this book before we wrap up our episode is... at the end of the same book, What the Robin Knows by John Young. And by the way, this book, um, even though we haven't gotten into it yet, is like the book on bird language, not just knowing what bird does what song, but what they're talking about. It's fascinating. Uh, The book itself I found a little bit dry, but it's got so much unique information. It's not a book that I would read for fun. Um, It's a book I would read for unique information. So, Here's the story he shares at the end, and he calls it Goose Whispering. One rainy early spring evening at Lake Sammamish State Park in King County, Washington, I was showing a group of about a dozen people how wildlife responds differently to dogs on and off the leash. For those with a bent for law enforcement, this knowledge can be used to find out where people are breaking the leash laws because (laughs) foraging deer avoid dogs' free-run areas, relatively speaking. The forage in those areas will be relatively undisturbed, while elsewhere in the same forest, the deer-pruned forage might be mistaken for bonsai. At the end of the long day, we were cutting back to the cars across a complex of baseball and soccer fields, and there on the infield of one of the diamonds was a large group of wild Canada geese. Around the country, some Canada geese are practically tame and become the bane of such outdoor facilities. But this gaggle of semi-migratory birds move between rivers, marshlands, meadows, pastures, and on this rainy day, the baseball field. They were skittish and obviously nervous about people. 
There were about 40 of them spread over an area about 30 yards wide, right on the path to the cars. Sure, we could easily have diverted around them, but there was also the temptation to move straight ahead, though no one felt good about scattering the geese. Obviously, these big birds were not as shy as they would be in absolute wilderness. They shared certain territories with people, but they had also had had run-ins with humans and were so keenly aware of us. One of the geese had its head up, watching us. As we got closer, it raised its head higher and paid a little more attention. All birds have a species-specific tension sequence, all animals too, for that matter, including us. In some species, including towhees, it's subtle, and therefore hard for us to differentiate the stages except for the final one, explosive flight. In others, it's obvious, and the geese are one of these species. Feeding or resting on a grassy field, they demonstrate the tension sequence very nicely. When this first goose raised its head, we paused. I said, well, let's try this. We all adopted the honoring routine, as we call it, which is simply to turn away from the birds or other animals, maybe 45 degrees, relax the body posture, and avert the eyes. Ask nothing and expect nothing. Use peripheral vision. The moment we did this, the sentinel lowered its head a little. Not unusual. People are always amazed by how effective this simple gesture is. When we turned back toward the geese and eased forward, relaxed, not stalking, the sentinel raised its head again, higher. After a couple of these tit-for-tat exchanges, some of the other geese joined in the ballet. This was becoming an interesting lesson for my group, and we probably could have gone back and forth like that for a long time, with the honoring routine earning a little more respect each time, but without much overall progress for us. At some point, the birds would probably issue a soft, not a warning exactly, it would mean they were nervous, just paying attention as a group. I suggested that we pretend to be busy, talking to one another, leaning down and feeding gestures, no threat whatsoever. The geese responded by taking a break from their eating and moving to the dirt area around second base that was puddled with water. They took turns drinking and casually watching us. They were still in our way. I said to the group, you know, they're done eating. They're getting a drink after their meal. Let's just tell them that we want to come through. Hmm. How do we do that? We'll turn in unison to face them, take a couple of steps forward, then stop and turn away in the honoring routine. We'll do it all together like a flock of geese. Nice. So we did, and the most amazing thing happened. The lead goose looked up, another goose looked up, and then they all turned, looked at one another, and separated into two groups, leaving a path for us between them a few yards wide. My hair stood straight up, no kidding, and so did everyone else's. That was a very high compliment from the geese. We all felt blessed and walked through the flock in single file. I whispered, don't turn and look at them as you pass by. The temptation will be to stop, but just keep walking calmly. They've said yes. Don't break the treaty. Just acknowledge them with a nod of thanks as you go by. All of us were powerfully moved. Setting aside collision in favor of connection always feels deeply right. I'm sure the beneficiaries of those those geese's courtesy are still talking about that experience. Wow. And see, I wish I had known about that with my interaction with the two geese at my old job. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have more opportunities. <laughs> I, uh, there's so much I like about that little excerpt there at the end of that book. Um, I like picturing the geese like parting ways, like the Red Sea for Moses. <laughs> you know, how they like didn't just move out of the way, but it was like, you can come right between us. I mean, I can see what like how that felt like such a compliment. And I love how he was telling everybody, don't break the treaty. 
that to me is like, I found that really moving. You know, we have an understanding. Let's not break the trust. And I just love, um, I just love how when you really start to be more aware of all the different beings on this planet, you realize that everybody thinks they have territories and everybody, you know, kind of acts in different ways. Even us with our, like, dumpster diving routine. Even though it's not our dumpster, it kind of, it feels like our territory. Just like the geese feel like it's their territory while they're eating and we feel like it's our territory when we have a house and we, like, you know, make payments on it or whatever. But I also like in the rest of the book um, how he mentions, how the author John Young mentions, like, when you are walking into a place where there are birds, like, don't just barge through. Don't forget that there are beings that live there. And I just really like that sentiment because you wouldn't expect someone to just barge into where you live. Like, be aware and, and have some respect. Mm-hmm. And there's so much more. We didn't get into a fraction of what I wanted to cover with this, but uh, we're going to wrap this up for an hour and just do another um, native literacy where we get more into some of the, the information that we want to explore with birds. Um, but one last thing for this episode, <coughs> I would like to honor, because this episode is called Native Literacy Songs, all the songs of nature. Um, and Teresa, I want to invite you, like, do you want to set us off? Is there any like song that you can recall that just moved you that comes from the natural world you know it's not all about information and like this heady kind of like oh you know the the robin goes cheerily cheerily cheer up it's listening to the music there's a symphony of the moment happening right now i used to tell kids when i'd send them out into the woods like listen there there is music playing right now pick out the instruments you know think of it as what it is it is a symphony of the moment the music you got to lose yourself in the music the moment you own it (laughs) So, Teresa, what's a song from nature that you want to give thanks for? Just recently, Gumby clued me into, um, okay, clued me into the song of the Katie did. And he was like, it's so subtle, and it's such a, a common song that you've heard it. You just might not realize what it is. And sure enough, that night, I not only heard... What did, it was like, Katie did, Katie did, Katie did, Katie did it. I'm like, what did Katie do? <laughs> yeah, I can't copy that one, but it's it's that cadence, yeah. And I want to give uh, thanks for all the insect songs, um, you know, the crickets, and yeah, we can hear insects singing right now. I don't know if it's going to pick up on this episode, but the cicadas are one that really move me you know they're so loud so powerful and i think about some of these cicadas that have been underground for like 14 years some of them um as as a larva form feeding on the roots of trees and then they come up for this one summer it is their only summer the only summer they will ever know and when you hear that 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 skull rattling loud song it's because they're singing for all they're worth this is their summer. Yeah. And I just love what that reminds me of. Like, I just take them for granted. I've, I've seen 43 summers now, and I almost, I, well, I do sometimes curse summer. Mm-hmm. It's hot. It's humid. But what is the same summer to the Katie did? I mean, the uh, cicada. And there's different cicada songs I've noticed. Like, some of them, 
I don't know if it's the same species or not, but there's different songs, it seems, d- during different times of the day. So in the afternoon versus the early evening. Um, and there are different cicada species, so it may be different species, it may be um, different times of day, but I just really love how they have different songs. Mm-hmm. And the coyotes, man, like especially out in uh, Bahama, North Carolina, where we tend to be... Uh, where we lived when we still had a house and where we tend to go in the winter, you can often hear the coyotes. And I am just always thrilled by the power of this song. Sometimes it'll be a lone coyote, um, but some nights the woods light up with coyote song. And it's so cool because they'll all be yipping and yapping and singing this powerful song. Like It just feels almost threatening. It's like, this is our land. We are here. We are the coyote people. We are proud. We are strong. We are together. And then, almost as if to like underline their discipline, their warrior status, they all stop at once. I have no idea what the cue is, how they know to do that. But that is almost more frightening than the power of their song. Mm-hmm. How they just all like, whoop, like they're gone. Not it's one al- extra yip or yap or yeah, anything. Yeah, and it's almost like they're trying to tell me we only get seen when we want to be seen. You heard us because we wanted to be heard, mm. and now we've disappeared back into the night. Mm. And that moment when we heard the elk song mm-hmm. in the high desert of Nevada, that was magical. Yeah, again, I can't do it justice. I'm not going to try to, if you've never heard an elk song, to try to tell you what that sounds like. But, man. It's like a nasal whistle, but it that doesn't do it justice. No, it's no. so haunting. It is a powerful, it sounds like something right out of uh, the history of the earth before we started the empire, the colonization. It sounds like a voice, a song from the wild, beautiful, green, healthy, abundant earth. Um, I love that song. It, it is one of the more moving songs. And uh, we've got elk here in North Carolina, but we haven't heard them sing. But man, maybe someday. Mm-hmm. And the frogs. Um, I want to honor the songs of frogs. And we have Peterson Field Guide to Eastern Forest will actually like tell you what songs tend to be sung first. So that's kind of a neat thing to know that there's an order Like uh, in Durham, where we live, there's a southern chorus frog, and that probably is my favorite frog song. Um, I don't know. It just evokes a really positive feeling in me. It sounds like a ratchet, like if you ever uh, had a a socket set, like a ratchet, but it's more musical. Um, And they sing all winter. But these are the oldest songs of an animal, of a creature. The amphibians were the first creatures... um, followed closely and interspersed with the insects to start colonizing the land, still tied to the water. And so there was a time in this world where the frog songs were the only songs. You didn't hear insects. You didn't hear birds. All you heard was the natural sounds of the earth itself and frogs. So whenever I hear these frog songs, I like to stop and remind myself I am hearing the oldest songs ever known. And that's a pretty damn special thing. Now, this next one, I i don't think I've heard myself, personally, but I've heard recordings of it. Well, I've heard it, so I'll give thanks for this one. Yeah. Wolves. Um, I went on a wolf tracking expedition in Idaho, and I know at least twice in my life I've heard wolves howling. And uh, 
I distinguish these from the coyote song. You know, you might think, oh, well, canines. But if you've heard both, if you've ever had the good fortune to hear a wolf song and a coyote song, they are so very different. Mm. The coyote is so energetic, and uh, uh, there's a lot of yips and yaps. It's a really, like, excited language. And the, the wolf song is almost mournful and long. It's the almost the stereotypical that... I mean, it just... I don't know. There's something really... Again, I think about like what I said about the elk. I mean, it's the song of something so wild, so far back in our past and our roots. I mean, it calls... The way I'm sure it calls the other wolves, it calls something in me, too. There's something of the wolf in me, and it. I feel it being drawn out when I hear that. Even just thinking about it just now, doing that horrible rendition I just did, even that called that feeling out in me a little bit. There is something so powerful and sacred in the wolf song. Mm-hmm. And if you spend time, any time at all outside, even if you just sit indoors with your windows open, you've heard the different sounds of the wind. And, God, it's just like, it's so magical to to hear that really strong wind and to hear the whispers through the trees and to, to know that, like we've read in uh, Carlos Castaneda books, like, there's certain times of day when there really isn't supposed to be wind, but yet there is something stirring. And to have those different feelings associated with, like, the wind before a storm, the wind during a storm, the wind after a storm, the wind when the sun is coming up or going down, and the sound it makes rattling the leaves or swishing the leaves. It's like the Eskimo and all their words for snow. You could have just as many words for the different sounds of the wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like I like the song of the leaves, too. And you might say, well, the leaves don't make any noise. That's the sound of the wind. But as David Abram pointed out in, oh, it might have been Becoming Animal, but in one of his great books, he uh, had somebody say that to him, and he said, well, isn't it the same with us? Like, you don't make sounds. It's the wind. It's the wind in your lungs. It's the wind passing through your body. It's the wind that you have taken in and, like, shaped differently. So the wind has a certain sound, and then it passes through the trees, and likewise the leaves shape the wind differently, which is why you hear a unique sound as the wind passes through the trees. So the song of trees, the song of leaves, um, that's another spectacularly beautiful song that I, I want to give thanks for and appreciate. And right now, like I said, in the background, whether you can hear it or not, the song of rivers, every river has its own song. Um Wow, can you imagine being so versed in river speak that you can hear a recording of a river and know which river it is? Wow. Um, you know, I'm sure that's possible because I know, like, listening right now, I can hear the Swannanoa River, and I know that sounds different than, you know, we've been through a few rivers now. There's one river I don't know the name of it. We just bathed in. The coldest water we bathed in all summer froze my balls off. <laughs> And it had a sound very different than what we're hearing now. Mm -hmm. They all have their own voices, their own song. And one river, I got to imagine this part of the river sounds different than another part of the river. And all the the expressions of the water, the rain, um, the rain beating on a tin roof, the rain beating on a van roof, (laughs) um, just the rain, the gentle rain falling on the grass or the dry leaves of autumn, the waves of the ocean 
lapping against that shore, that rhythmic heartbeat of our Mother Earth. Just, you know, talk about an old song. That predates any animal song. Mm. Those waves lapping the ocean. Um, and even the sound of snow. You ever heard the sound of snow? It depends. Yeah, there's different types of snow. I've, I've heard some that's heavier. Yeah, I don't mean like, have you? can you hear a snowflake? But I mean, actually, have you ever heard a snow song? But actually, there is this sound that snow makes, even when the only thing you're hearing it fall on really is the ground. It's kind of like this like vacuum of sound. It's like so cold that the sound is kind of frozen. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, that, that, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's at once so quiet that it feels like a hush. It feels like a deafening silence, but it's not quite silence. There's the sound of something falling underneath that. Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful, subtle song, and the song of fire sitting around a fire, all the pops and hisses and the, the crackle of a fire. Oh, there was a, a stick in our hobo stove a couple days ago when we were cooking some gumbo. And uh, you weren't there, but I said, Sherlock, do you hear that? And it just went, for a long time. And it just kept on that same little trajectory of going a little further up. And then all of a sudden it was like, I don't know what it was, but it was pretty cool. <laughs> Are there any other songs that before we uh, cap off our, our episode here? Oh, I mean, I don't know. There's, oh, there's, <laughs> uh, well, I'll do one bird to cap it off. I used to uh, go to my grandma's house up in Ohio during the summer to visit, and it wouldn't get so hot up there, so she didn't have the AC or anything. We would just have the windows open, and in the afternoon, I'd love to take a little nap. And I'd often either fall asleep or wake up to the sounds of what I thought was an owl in the middle of the afternoon. And I thought, how fortunate it is that I always hear this owl in the afternoon. And it went, And that was any time from when I was about age seven until maybe, well age 18 or so and then we didn't go up as frequently and I grew up and got busy you know working and everything and uh oh maybe about four or five years ago I'm talking to my friend who's from um oh my god I forget what the name of that country is south of India (laughs) starts with a s I think um and and I'm explaining to her like one of my favorite bird songs is this owl that goes whoo And she calls me Auntie, and she says, Auntie, it's a morning dove. And I was like, morning dove? Hell, it's in the afternoon. I hear it all the time. It's an owl. She's like, no, 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 Auntie, it's a morning dove. And uh, she was right, and I was like, what, 35 at the time or something? (laughs) I had thought my whole life that this was an owl that was lulling me to sleep in the middle of the day. But it turns out it was a morning dove, and I'm okay with that now. Yeah, we still call it a morning owl sometimes for <laughs> Teresa's benefit. So, yeah, thank you so much for all the songs of nature. And uh, please, especially if you're feeling like all the stuff going on in the world right now and, you know, so much stuff to feel stressed about, busy, 
Just go sit outside for a little bit and listen to the symphony of the moment. There's so many instruments. And don't shut out the, the jet planes and the traffic either. Um, this moment is a gift, no matter what we think about some of the instruments involved in that song. Um, you're alive. You're drawing breath. You're part of that symphony right now. And I'd just like to really encourage you to go out and remind yourself of that. Listen. So for our listener write-in, we have Diana. Um, we don't know where from, so thanks for nothing for that. We don't get to do no <laughs> accent. Um, Diana, that makes me think of, or what was that book, Hokkaido Blues? Mm-hmm. Hokkaido Highway? Yeah, something like that. It was about this guy hitchhiking in Japan, and he was saying that, like, at that time, the big karaoke song that the Japanese guys liked to sing was uh, it was really popular, was Diana. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just love, like, picturing Japanese guys in a karaoke bar, like, uh, I so young and you so old. <laughs> this my darling, I've been told. Oh, that's your song, honey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, maybe maybe you have to, like, be in my head to appreciate that. But she wrote, love the theme song. Well, thank you, Diana. Um, that remains the only song that I've ever written. And uh, each season we kind of whittle it down a little bit. I'm not sure what we're going to do with it, if we're going to, like, try to make another one. or I don't know. We're kind of playing around and experimenting with, like, the music that we're doing and everything, just to keep it interesting for us mainly. Um we are not musicians, so that frees us to really play with it and experiment because we don't expect to be good. That's kind of our whole thing is we're a couple of hobos out here just being hobos. So if you want, like, fine music, um, yeah, go get a CD. But I'm <laughs> glad you appreciate it, Diana. And anything you want to say to that, Teresa? Oh, I like the song too, Diana. Here's a song. The Song of Crime. Ooh. So, no, actually, I think this is a different kind of fire song. (laughs) So if you have any questions or comments, you can visit our website. We have a way to contact us um, through our website. Um, It is www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in Bob White, dot com. Um, We also have a Facebook page, uh, Escaping Society. And we have a YouTube channel that you can access through our website, um, full of videos that we try to uh, make that kind of back up things that we can't show you through the podcast, like plants and stuff like that when we talk about different skills. Um, we have a donate button now, so if you are able and moved to to support our podcast, we uh, definitely benefit hugely from these donations. Um, we've had a lot of van difficulties this summer. I just had a what was that? An ignition coil go bad on the van? Yeah. So that was an, a $90 something thing I just had to replace. About a week after, a uh, $200 and something dollar radiator that Teresa just bought. And I'm having to do all these YouTube videos to figure out how to do it. So, yeah, we could always use financial support. But if you are not in a position to give us financial support, we love hearing your questions and comments. So please write us. Um, and I especially like. I try to be very opinionated in these. I don't hold back because I want to invite you to think for yourself. So if there's something you disagree with, if there's something that you think I'm not seeing, I'm leaving out, please sit down, think about it, write it out, and make a uh, counterpoint. Mm -hmm. I will gladly read it, and I won't uh, be offended. You know, I'll read it, and I'll respond to it. So um, anything like that, anything supportive, any stories, we love them all. Anything else, Teresa? 
Yeah, thanks for everybody that have donated and for all of the listener write-ins and comments and everything. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Next time. <laughs>